0: Hey everyone, welcome to Well Disguised. I am your host, John Pritchard, and of course I'm usually the star of the show, but that is not actually going to be the case this week, because I have my first guest on Well Disguised, who is not a personal friend of mine, not that Stevie Flyth and David Swain aren't great guests, but this episode of Well Disguised is a conversation that I had with Jeff Edgers. Jeff Edgers is a journalist, he is the national arts reporter for the Washington Post, not only can you read his stuff in the Washington Post, obviously, but he's also hosting a show on their Instagram channel that's coming out every Friday at two o'clock. I believe his most recent guest was Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters. He's written and published several children's books. If you've seen the, if you've ever, if you've got kids and you've been in a bookstore and seen all the books that they have that are kind of biographies, he's done several of those. He's done them on Elvis Presley. He's done them on the Beatles. He's done them on Stan Lee of Marvel Comics fame. He and his wife co-wrote one on uh, Chef Julia Child. He's produced a movie, and he's done all sorts of things. But for our purposes, and the reason why I talked to him, is that in February of 2019, he wrote a book called Walk This Way, Run DMC, Aerosmith, and the song that changed American music forever. I recently finished the book. I was going to do an episode about it when I thought, well, maybe I'll just write the guy and see if he'd be willing to come on. And I'll talk more about that later. But lo and behold, he said, sure. And here we are having this great conversation about Steven Tyler and Rick Rubin and Jimmy Crespo and the guys from Run DMC and just several other aspects of the making of the song. I really hope you'll enjoy it, and it's coming up very quickly. But first, if you don't mind to indulge me just a little bit of my personal history and biography with this song. I didn't get into music as early as many of my peers. As I've said before, I grew up in the country and no one would call me a country boy, but for me, growing up in the country, one of the main things that meant is that I didn't have cable growing up, which means I didn't have MTV growing up. And my mom would sometimes, when we were in the car, she would play pop music, top 40, that type of thing. And my dad, he loved classical music, still loves classical music, but He's a little bit from, I guess, the old school, if you'll pardon that stupid phrase. When we were riding in the car together and he took me to school basically every day for years and years and years of my life, that was time for us to connect. So the radio was off. We didn't listen to the radio. That was time for us to connect and talk. And I certainly appreciate and love that about him. But one of the things all that stuff meant was I just didn't get exposed to music very much. It took a long time. Eventually, my parents sold the house that I was brought home to as a baby uh, to build the house that they still live in now. But at that time they needed to sell the first house so they could have the money to build the next one. And for that two, two and a half years, because my dad and my grandfather basically built the house themselves, the time it took to build their, their dream house, we moved into the city and in the city I was able, when I was in late elementary school, I was able to get MTV. And with that access to MTV, I was able to start to have this appreciation for music. And my timelines could be off here, but this is at least how I remember things happening. I got into some of the popular, you know, MTV used to have the Top 20 Countdown, and I would watch it several times. And one of the videos that I do remember is It's Tricky by Run DMC, which of course also had Pen & Teller in it. Uh, I was familiar with my Adidas, and people at school talked about Run DMC. That's somebody I was familiar with, even if I didn't really know much of anything of their stuff. So if you're old enough to remember those glory days of MTV, you probably remember the Video Music Awards, the VMAs. Of course, I guess they still have those. But one thing that MTV did back then is once they had a VMA show, they would show it over and over and over. And I'm certain this did not happen when it aired live, probably at night. But I do remember watching a VMA Awards with Run DMC coming out doing Walk This Way. And I was into it and thought Run DMC was pretty cool, right? But then there was this skinny guy with long hair who was also on the microphone who was hitting these impossibly high notes And even if his dancing and his dance moves weren't the cool breakdancing kind of moves or the Michael Jackson type moves that I thought were what was popular and, and cool and, you know, whatever, I was just mesmerized by that dude. I couldn't believe how good his voice was. I couldn't believe how cool he looked. And if I thought he was cool, well, take a look at the guitar player. But I still didn't, I think, even at that early age, I didn't realize what I was watching until some point later. It seemed to me probably only a few months later, but again, I don't know which rerun I caught of this VMA. I don't even know if it was a VMA. I just think that it was a VMA. I guess I should look that up before I do a podcast. I'm pretty sure it was a VMA Awards. Anyway, a few months later, I think... I saw a video on MTV for a song called Dude Looks Like a Lady. And immediately I recognized the guy who's clearly wearing a clothing item of some type on the top portion of his torso, except it's not really covering anything somehow. And he's still dancing in a way that was cool to me. And he sang great. And he hit these impossible high notes and did this thing with his tongue where it was ca, 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 ca. I mean you, if you know the song you know what I'm talking about and maybe that sounds dumb to you and maybe it is I don't know I don't really think this, I don't really think so but at that point I knew this was my band this was the most intriguing musical act I had ever seen in my life Aerosmith was who I wanted to know a whole lot more about and wanted to follow and You know, really, that started what's been a lifelong love affair with that band. And so for me, I really think it goes back to Dude Looks Like a Lady. But really, in retrospect, it goes back to the collaboration they did with Run DMC on Walk This Way. So again, thank you for indulging me with that little bit of personal biography. So now, without further ado, or further ado, right after the music, my conversation with Jeff Edgers.
1: be joined today by Jeff Edgers, who, among other things, is the national arts reporter for The Washington Post and the author of the 2019 book, Walk This Way, Run DMC, Aerosmith, and the song that changed American music forever. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on, and I can't wait to talk to you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Before we get into the mechanics of how the book came about, you did write about you know almost 300 pages about this song. Did you have some personal relationship with it as a, as a younger man?
2: Well, I mean, my only relationship with, with Walk This Way is really
1: that it,
2: as a suburban white kid, uh, and this is something that I share with probably millions of people, it, it really, Walk This Way, the Run DMC version, was the first time I really heard uh, hip-hop on the radio, uh, because at that point, it wasn't played on mainstream radio in any way. It was You'd have to go to College Station or, like, a small AM station here in the Boston area where I, where I grew up. And um, so Walk This Way was the first song, uh, first rap song that was played on mainstream radio. And in large part because in my hometown, WBCN, which was a very influential rock station, uh, played it. And, you know, entertainment, rock, radio, uh, MTV, everything. Basically, they follow the leader and WBCN was one of the leaders. So once they started playing it, everybody else said, hey, we can uh, we can do that too. And so that song, which was not the best Run-DMC song, and in fact was not even the best Run-DMC song on that specific record, but it's the most important by far because it, to me, ushered in a chance to have people like me hear, hear rap.
1: When you wrote, well, Going back to 2016, you wrote uh, obviously a shorter article in the post about it and an oral history of the song. At what point, when you were working on that, did you decide, I want to turn this into a book?
2: Well, I, I think that um, during the process of reporting, I figured this is going to be a long story by newspaper standards, you know, maybe 5,000 words, and it had a lot of bells and whistles and samples of songs. Sure. Uh, but. It it didn't really get out of the moment. You know, to spend that much time on the song still left me around 1986. And I felt like there was a really interesting story, a backstory, basically, of what built Aerosmith, what built Run DMC, and what got these two groups into the same room at the same time when they had no real connection, theoretically. And so I just started digging. And, you know, I'm kind of an obsessive reporter, so I just kept building call upon call upon call. And in the end, I think I talked to, I don't know if it was like more than 100 people, but, you know, anybody who is alive and involved, I talked to.
1: And that kind of leads me into another question, because when an artist has something to promote – you know, of course they talked to Jeff Edgers. Of course they talked to Rolling Stone or The Tonight Show or, or, or even a podcast like mine, whatever. Um, this wasn't that. So was it hard for you to get people to talk? Like, wh- Why did they talk to you at this point?
2: Well, I'm pretty persistent at calling people and writing to them. And, <laughs> right. and, 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 and you know, I mean, I feel like – uh, but, I mean, the main appeal I make to people is, look um, – this is a story you're involved in uh, i can pluck all the material from other sources and just requote it but i believe that the way to get to the truth of the matter is to really talk one on one and uh, i think you're an important figure here whether you're you know trevor gale the guy who played the drum beat on some of the early songs that were you know run dmc modeled itself on uh, or you're LL cool j you know world famous international Star, either way, I I think it does us all a service to to actually have a conversation, which is not to say that it's easy. I mean, I spent just getting, like, you know, Ron to talk to me, and I eventually got to visit him at his home and sat with him. But it took more than a year of getting – you know, I talked to him briefly for the news article, but then getting actual time to sit with him took a year and, you know, who knows, 10, 12 different requests – but uh, how, how else can you get the real story to me?
1: Yeah, and that actually leads me to another thing, too, that I wanted to ask you about because – and I don't know whether I need to give a, a spoiler alert here at this point for a book like this, which isn't fiction. But your epilogue uh, is about you going to, to Run's house, uh, you know, a.k.a. Joseph Simmons. Why did you pick that encounter as the epilogue? Why did Why did you close with that?
2: To me, it was kind of a visceral experience of, you know, showing he's a very unlike Daryl DMC. I, I find Run to be much more uh, rehearsed, and uh, he kind of plays a character more. And um, what I was moved by with that was when I showed him this footage that I found in the MTV vaults, which really no one had seen, uh, showing Ron and, and, and Daryl in the recording studio that day, I, I thought it kind of cracked through a level of performance, interview performance, and gave you a real honesty. And um, I just was, I just liked that moment. So, that, you know, that's why. I mean, the thing about stories like this, I'm not, not some, you know, I'm not like um, Ernest Hemingway or something. So I I don't really feel like I'm a genius writer. To me, my skill is in reporting and and acquiring information. And once you view your job that way, the beginning, the end, the middle, it almost becomes interchangeable. It becomes like scenes in a movie where you decide, does the, can I move this scene to this part? And is this more effective in this part? And how, how does it all work? You know, so it's, it's. I think I made that decision just because I felt like it, on a very simple level, it I liked that scene.
1: Was he the toughest major interview for you to get?
2: No, I don't think so. I think LL Cool J was pretty, he was pretty hard, request after request after request. And then finally I found his email somewhere, and I wrote to him directly, and he was actually quite easy to get to at that point. A lot of problems a lot of the problem you have in in this thing is that um, people have so many handlers that it just becomes really hard to get to the person, so they don't always know that they're they're being asked. Uh, And then also, it was also about being available at all times. You know, I remember pulling over to the side of the road and hopping into my passenger seat to interview Rick Rubin, because that's when he called. I remember Mm -hmm. being at I think it was like Suicide Squad or like some movie with my wife and I ended up on a parking deck with my laptop out. You know, I always carry my computer around because I never know when things are going to happen and, you know, Steven Tyler and um, I just it's really about always being available all the time. And then there were just some guys who were like, you know, who were hard to find because they were not famous, you know, like you know the guy who fo- took the first photos, first publicity photos of of Run DMC. He's just hard to find, you know. And also some of the more obscure rappers from that time period. But you know, you track them down, you find phone numbers, you find relatives' phone numbers, and you just d- dig at it.
1: My impression going into reading your book, and and I, I want you to correct me where I'm wrong or, or 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 if I'm wrong. But my my impression going in was that. In 1986 and maybe even 87, 88, 89, the general opinion was that uh, both bands were obviously helped by the collaboration, but maybe Aerosmith was helped more because you know, this wasn't something that Kiss got or Black Sabbath got or Styx or Falk hat or whatever, um, to, to be connected to this emerging, uh, very hip <laughs> you know new art form but looking back now in 2021 this seems to be the maybe the, the maybe not the first but maybe the second thing that you'll hear about Run-DMC where Aerosmith just had so much other stuff do you agree with that or 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 do you think that they were equally helped or 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 what what's your opinion on that
2: well i, I think the conventional wisdom is that you know Aerosmith somehow, you know, helped Run DMC break through, but I think, you know, what I hope people will get if they read the book is that, in fact, it was Run DMC who were, you know, rising stars and had sold millions of records. Their first two records had increasingly sold, and um, Aerosmith was really on the downturn. I mean, they had just reformed Joe Perry, the guitarist, and Steven Tyler, the singer, had had uh, come back together to do to reunite as Aerosmith after a lot of drug problems and arguments over money and all sorts of stuff. Um, but their record uh, that was supposed to be a comeback, Done With Mirrors, was, um, while I enjoyed that record, it was considered a commercial failure. And they were under a lot of pressure. And um, they were considered, like, old, even though they were, like, 34 or something or whatever. Um, and so Run DMC... Uh, works with them on this version of Walk This Way, Perry and Tyler, and that inf- leads to them cleaning up, um, getting drug-free, and then recording Permanent Vacation the next year, and uh, that was their big comeback. So I, you know, I feel like Run-DMC helped Aerosmith more than Aerosmith
1: helped Run-DMC. It seems to me that Run and Daryl, uh, DMC again, they, don't, they didn't seem to like the song very much. Did that surprise you?
2: Well, what they liked was the beat, and they knew that beat. Right. But uh, they didn't. Uh, they said they didn't know the song. I mean, as I detailed in there, talking to them, they were just messing around with the beat one day in the studio, and Rick Rubin came in and said, oh, cool, you like that, you like Aerosmith. And they were basically like, who's Aerosmith? Uh, they didn't seem to know. And, no, they didn't really like the song, and, and in fact, when they first uh recorded it they didn't take it all that seriously and you can see that in some of the footage that i was able to acquire and and i wrote about which is they're just kind of doing it as kind of a goof and it's jam master j who was the kind of voice of reason and the guy who kind of was the glue really he's the one who told run and d to get back in the studio and re-record their their rap because they were going to look like idiots and so right. um uh no they did they they weren't really into the song it wasn't their thing you know
1: do they like it better now or is it still kind of this was what we had to do to walk through the door but we're not crazy about it
2: i think they appreciate it um i think they appreciate that it what it did for them and how it helped them and uh, also what it you know what it did as a um as a tool to break through, you know, rap. Uh, I do think that, you know, if you talk to Run about it, he'll say, look, it's not even the best track on the record, my Adidas or, you know, I mean, he, he's, and, and he's, he's right, but so what? You know, and I, I'd, al- I'd also say like, I mean, on Raising Hell, which is the record it's on, Walk This Way kind of fits in really well on that record, even better than as a single to me.
1: When you wrote the book, there's obviously sort of – this is part of the cultural history of the United States and as a, as a moment uh, with our uh, race and that sort of thing. But you don't really seem to me – and maybe I, maybe I just missed it, but race doesn't seem to be as big a part of the book as one might expect when they, when they crack it open. Was that a conscious decision on your part, or do you think that just kind of reflected the individuals that that's not really how they saw what was going on?
2: Well, I think there are two kinds of books here, and there's two kinds of stories here. One is there's a detailed sort of history story about the creation of a product. That's one thing. Then there's a whole other kind of story here, which is about the sort of it's like a sort of philosophical discussion of the appropriation of black music over time and, uh, you know, how that plays out in society and how that plays out in, in, uh, with different artists. That's a very good story. It's just not the story that I did. Uh, you know, what I, the way that I deal with that in the book is I think that there's a pretty good argument to be made. I mean, I spend a lot of time on a guy like Larry Smith. Larry Smith, who was the producer of Run DMC's first two records, he did Houdini, he did the Fat Boys. I argue that Larry Smith was the real, you know, king of rap. Um, Rick Rubin, who came in and produced the third Run DMC record, you know, he comes in and does that record, and he had done LL Cool J's first record, but that's it, too. He was on the cover of The Village Voice, you know, proclaimed to be the king of rap. And I right. raised the question of whether you know that was fair or not, and and whether you know why Larry Smith was wiped out of the record. I mean, if you walk down the street and asked a hundred people at the Pitchfork, um, you know, convention who Larry Smith is, I think ninety-nine would have no idea. And if you asked him who Rick Rubin is, they'd all know. So, right. That's how I tried to deal with it. Uh, that said, I don't think that in the moment, Run and Daryl and. Joe Perry and Steven Tyler were talking about race. They were just in the
1: studio for their own reasons. Is Rick Rubin overrated, underrated, or properly rated?
2: Well, just, I mean, Rick Rubin, it depends on who you talk to. But, I mean, you can't, you know, you hear people talk about him not doing something or, like, him lying on the couch for a long time or, you know, this or that. But, you know, the fact is, (laughs) you look at the list of records he's produced from, all those hip hop records in the '80s, to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, to Tom Petty, to that amazing Neil Diamond record uh, that that he made, uh, to Jay Z. I mean, it's just it's it's hard to uh, the Avet Brothers. It's hard to deny that when you're the producer of all those records, that you don't have some kind of ma- magical quality to you. Um, so right. you know, I. I it, is, it's like it's hard to say, is he is he given too much credit? I mean, he's not given too little credit. We know that. Is he giving too much credit? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, when you make that much great music, when you're involved on that level, uh, it, it's hard to deny your significance.
1: If you and I were, well, if we if, if we were not in a pandemic at this situation, we could probably go to the closest football stadium and see a band like The Who. And and I don't want to say Run DMC is, is is the Beatles, because, you know, the Beatles are so special. But I would say Run DMC is at least the rap or hip-hop equivalent of The Who or, or, or somebody like that. Do you see anything tragic about their story? I mean, they're 99 – they are more successful than 99.99% of people who've ever done anything. They, they, were, they were more successful at what they did. But – you talk at the end about how LL Cool J was trying to take them on tour and even going to open up for them, and it just didn't come together. Is, is there anything tragic about Run DMC?
2: Well, I think the, the tragedy of Run DMC is just that Jam Master J is dead. I mean, sure. he was killed in an unsolved murder. I think that's a tragedy. Otherwise, it's like, should Run DMC be playing stadiums right now? Should they be in the top of the record charts? I mean, I don't really know how to answer that because there are so many bands. I mean, I love the Kinks, you know, I love the Replacements, uh, you know, uh, I love De La Soul. It's like you have your moment of time and that's your moment. And it's very rare to be like, you know, the Foo Fighters, you know, or even Tribe Called Quest. They had they came back, but they had a huge lull in there and it's just very rare to stay on top for that long. So. You know, Run D.M.C. had a had a really good run, but for a variety of reasons, they they couldn't keep it together. But um, it's hard to call it tragic. I mean, you pull those records out, and they still st- sound as fresh today as uh, as they ever did. Uh, you know, I would say right. that there is a definite distinction between the way that we treat our hip hop legends and our rock legends, which is, to me, a little bit. Uh, unfair, which is when you're Bruce Springsteen or Madonna or whatever, you're, you know, you're considered like a classic rocker, you know, or or, you don't even necessarily have a a, a label, but when you're LL Cool J or Tribe Called Quest or De La Soul or even Public Enemy, you're old school, you know. <laughs> I think that's a, right. a little bit of an unfair way. I mean, that Public Enemy record that just came out was as, as dynamic as any that they made and right on point. It's hard for me to say that they should be seen as diminished in some way.
1: I want to ask you about Steven Tyler. I mean, uh, this is a rock podcast after all, so I want to, and he's probably my favorite musician of all time. But I do get the impression, not just from your book, but certainly his own book and other, other pieces that have been written about him, he can at least be difficult to fact check, uh, if not interview. What was it like talking to Steven Tyler?
2: I found Steven Tyler to be actually quite easy to deal with. Really, you know, I talked to him on the phone a few times and then I met him one time and I was actually really surprised at how, you know, normal he was and how, how reasonable he was. And he's also like, he was funny as far as his approach to, um, you know, the band, where he would say things to me that I thought were extremely kind of abrasive or negative about other guys in the band. But if you said it to him, if you asked him a question that he thought was criticizing them, he would strike back at you or get angry or defensive. And it, it's almost like how you would deal with someone talking smack about your brother or sister, like you can do right. it, but someone outside the circle can't. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that the, uh, part of the thing about, them arguing about so much. I mean, arguing about who invented the drum beat for "Walk This Way." Is it Joey Kramer, the drummer, or Steven Tyler? I have a whole chapter on that. Is you know, fog of fog of war, and people were taking their medicine, and time passes, and also maybe it was a combination of things. Uh, who 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 can know unless you were on that stage in Honolulu in like 1974, actually watching it come together. But I, I found, you know, Stephen Tyler is – people might say that he's a bit of a uh, – that he's difficult or that he's like a dictator or whatever. But, look, if you go to see Stephen Tyler play a solo show or you go to see him with Aerosmith, you know, a few people have actually maintained their talent and ability and voice like he has. And that sense of, like, perfectionism and professionalism is – it just comes – with all that other stuff and you and you just can't have it any other way but i found him to be really responsive and and wonderful to talk to and um i, I liked how he how he addressed
1: things the first time i heard the term li3 uh... was an own autobiography which is you know also, they wrote it with stephen davis and it's also called walk this way but um... in that book Brad Whitford, Joey Kramer, and Tom Hamilton call themselves the, the less interesting three. Uh, in your book, I believe it's John uh, John Cullodner who uses the term uh, slightly more derogatory, saying it's the less they were the less important three. When you interviewed those three guys, did you get the sense? I think in your book you kind of go you talk about how they seem to say we wish we had been in in more on the song, we wish we had been included more. Uh, whereas the others say they weren't into it, they didn't really want to be involved. What was your perception of what the truth might be there?
2: Well, I I, I don't think that you can do anything other than report on what the, uh, what the people involved say and also the fact that Aerosmith was kind of down on their luck and also that uh, I'm not sure what the other guys in Aerosmith would have contributed to the recording, certainly, of um, – the Run DMC version, I mean, the beat was the beat. You didn't really need a drummer. And as far as the video goes, it's just a matter of, you know, money. Like, is someone willing to pay their freight to get them to, to the show? And, you know, no question about it, the guys in Aerosmith have felt slighted over the years and, and, and mistreated. But, um, you know, there aren't too many bands that have stayed together for that long uh, essentially as a, you know, the same unit. I mean, ZZ Top, U2 maybe, but right. Aerosmith's been together despite all their dysfunction forever. Um, so, you know, did, did they want uh, – I don't think in 1986 that they were sitting down with, you know, a cup of herbal tea and discussing Brad Woodford's feelings – you know, I think I think right. they were on tour, they were messed up, and I think they were called and said, hey, uh, we'll give you a seven grand, uh, Steve and, and Joe, to go to New York and work on this thing with these rap guys. And they're just like, okay. I mean, no one said, hey, we're giving you, um, we're bringing you into the studio because you're going to record one of the most important songs of the 80s. Uh, that wasn't the expectation. Uh, it was just a day off, and they were told to go and, you know, help out on something.
1: In the acknowledgment section of your book, you um, you encourage us to go on YouTube and listen to to Jimmy Crespo. Were you able to talk to Jimmy?
2: Yeah, I talked to him a couple times, yeah. I mean, I, I, I consider, okay. just like Larry, Larry Smith, I consider Jimmy Crespo like a really important figure as well because – depending on how deep you get into Aerosmith, it's like Jimmy Crespo was, um, you don't have to listen to me, you can listen to Jack Douglas, who loves Aerosmith, the, the producer of their, their best records. He said that uh, Jimmy Crespo was technically the best guitarist Aerosmith ever had. and um, Right. But he was also like sort of a fragile, emotional figure, and uh, <laughs> this weird combination of him and Rick Dufay, who was a bit of a badass, bullying, hilarious guy who was the other guitarist in Aerosmith during that period of time where Joe Perry and Brad Woodford left. Um, That combination didn't totally work. But if you look at Rock in a Hard Place, the record, the one record Aerosmith managed to squeeze out during those difficult years, Jimmy Crespo's all over that record. I mean, not just playing, but writing. I mean, he really wanted to save Aerosmith. He really wanted it to work out, and it just, it just couldn't. But I talked to him a, a bunch of times because I, I was fascinated after hearing from Jack Douglas, who you know I respect greatly, about how good he was, but then also listening to some of those performances on YouTube with Jimmy Crespo and hearing how he played. I mean, it's a really interesting thing to think about what Aerosmith could have done if they had been clean for those few years.
1: Yeah, I've always kind of thought that uh, Joe Perry might even be the third most talented guitar player in Aerosmith. Uh, when 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 you compare with Whitford and 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 Crespo too, you talked to John kaladner I just mentioned him when I was talking about the whether it's the less important three or the less interesting three. Do you get a do you have a good sense of what his talent is?
2: Well, I mean his his. Uh Uh, I mean, if you look at what he's produced, or, or, I'm sorry, what he's he's overseen and who he's signed, I mean, his talent is clearly knowing what will be popular in that moment. So Asia might not be your cup of tea, but he understands that they're the right thing at the right time. Um, So, and also, I think he does not, you know, while with Aerosmith, he kind of got bullied a little bit, not to use that term again, but kind of pushed around on Done With Mirrors, I I don't think he listens to the artist in in a way that, you know, he lets himself get – he doesn't allow them to do things that he thinks are not going to help them succeed. So, I mean, basically, you know, he was one of the main architects for Aerosmith's comeback, and what that meant is him identifying producers who could work with Aerosmith and songwriters who could help work with them writing songs when they hadn't really worked with outside people in the past and that was kind of the the thing that he did I, I mean I don't think that he really couched things when he felt a certain way he would say what that way was and you know he is I f- found him to be great to deal with and I loved talking with him but the man doesn't hide the fact that he does have an ego I mean when he credited himself <coughs> on uh, some of his early records as you know, John Colladner colon John Colladner, uh, mm-hmm. that that just about says it all, right?
1: <laughs> well, I, and I know he he seemed to have David Geffen's ear or trust, uh, and I'm sure that went a long way as well.
2: Well, your your record in the business is uh, what you do and how you succeed, and when you start having a, a, a you know a slate of successful records and your you're, you're able to, to, to make almost anything happen. I mean, look at the guy who produced Done With Mirrors, um, you know, uh, blanking, blanking, blanking.
1: Ted, Ted Templeman. Yeah,
2: Ted Templeman, who I spoke with a few times. Ted Templeman was the king. I mean, he Doobie Brothers, Van Halen, Little Feet, and then he has a few setbacks, and suddenly he's kind of not the king, you know? <laughs> I mean, for, for right. a few years, it seemed like Jeff Lynn was producing every hit record, and that Jeff Lynn sound was pervading uh, pop music, but you know, or you know, the best example is Larry Smith. I mean, the guy had a run that was like Phil Spector over two years, and then he can't get a record made after 1989, basically. So, um, you know, John Kolodner, though uh, really understood the music business and understood what made hits, and uh, that was his that was his skill.
1: One other person you talked to was Tim Collins, who was Aerosmith's former manager and who they famously had a pretty big falling out about, um, you know, they accused him of lying about drug relapses or Steven Tyler's infidelity, that sort of thing. Did you size up, and I know you kind of let the words do the talking, I suppose, but um, do, did you size up Tim Collins at this point as a, you know, a honest, unbiased broker of, uh, of, of what happened with Aerosmith? Well, I think, you
2: know, Tim Collins is such a um – He's so incredibly uh, focused on the world of recovery and, um, and, and how, how you live, really. And I think what happened with, you know, I don't think Aerosmith could have made its comeback without Tim Collins. I think he, he's the one who ultimately got them clean and taught them a whole sure. new way of living. But what I think happened is uh, at a certain point, the same things that uh, made that effective. The same kinds of controls and, um, you know, 12-step philosophies made the guys in Aerosmith who were grown men feel like they were being controlled or uh, feel like they were, uh, you know, didn't have any freedom. And I think those things were the things that that led to that split. And so they may have different views on on how they, um, you know, went about cleaning up but ultimately i I think aerosmith does give him credit for that and uh i I don't think the band would have had its late 80s and early 90s resurgence without tim collins
1: looking at the 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 lasting impact of the song do you think there's as many white rappers white hip-hop artists or uh, you know, black rock musicians, as one might have expected back in 1986 or 87 when the song was blowing up. Yeah, I
2: mean, if you listen, uh, you know, you could have listened to the to college radio at that time, or you know, I have stacks of them now. I have you know records that are um, from from that time period. There, there are plenty of artists. It's just that they a lot of them were coming out on, you know, coming out as singles. Or uh, you know, on small labels, and I don't think that uh, I think when Run D M C came along, they made it clear that you could have an album career, which before you that wasn't really talked about much. But also that you could be as big a arena star as as any rock band. You know, I talked to Ice T, and he remembers going to see them play one of those early shows and he had been he was in a, you know an aspiring rapper and and he went to see Run-DMC play one of those early shows and he said that it just opened his eyes he was like this can be as big as anything else you know this can be huge and um, it, it changed the way he viewed his trajectory as a as a rap artist but you know from the 80s i mean there are i have you know tons and tons of singles and you know stuff that that came out the 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 rappers were there. They just weren't being played on the radio as much.
1: All right. I got your book on the Amazon. I know people are smart enough to know. It's either on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, their local bookseller, that sort of thing. Where else can people follow you? I know you're doing stuck with Jeff at this point. Where else can we uh, consume Jeff Edgers?
2: Well, every every Friday I, I do on the Washington Post Instagram um, account, I have a live show at 2 o'clock in the afternoon Eastern time. And I've had everybody from uh, Yo-Yo Ma to Dave Davies to Jamie Lee Curtis. I have Dave Grohl this Friday, um, and uh, yeah, I just do an hour-long show. And that's because I'm stuck here in this pandemic. I can't really travel. But also, just look at me. Look, look for me in the Washington Post, and you know, you can go to Amazon and get the book. I also have done a few children's books on the Beatles and Elvis Presley and Stan Lee, um, among others. So uh, yeah, and um, just uh, keep reading because that's how we—that's how we survive. We get readers, you know.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, Jeff. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope everyone will go buy this book, buy something else, listen to you. It's—it um, was an honor and pleasure to have you on, and I certainly wish you continued success.
2: Thanks so much. Stay safe. I'll talk to you later. Okay.
1: Thank you, Jeff. All right. Bye bye.
0: So that's my conversation with Jeff Edgers. I really want to thank him again. I'm just so thrilled that he came on the show. You know, folks, he didn't have to do that. I mean, the guy works for the Washington Post. He doesn't work for my local newspaper or what have you. In the past month, I think he has talked to Dave Davies of the Kinks, uh, comedian and actress Sarah Silverman, former anchor of CBS's Nightly News, Dan Rather. He's talked to John Bon Jovi, and he's talked to me. Which one of these doesn't belong, right? I wrote him. I asked him if he'd be willing to come on. He got back very quickly, said sure. He even offered to record it. That's probably why the audio actually sounds better when he's talking than when it's me, because he recorded it and sent it to me, and... I tried to record my into, but I couldn't figure out how to merge them or make it better. So whatever. Um, I don't mind that he sounds better on it. I hope the quality is okay. I actually do quite a bit of talking for my day job and doing sort of this type of thing. I feel like I actually learned a lot, though. I, I see some of the mistakes I made in the questions and the transitions between them. Hopefully, I'll be better the next time I have an opportunity like this. But anyway... Thank you so much, Jeff. When I wrote him and asked him to do it, he didn't ask you know, how big my listenership was or anything like that. All he said was, sure, I'll come on your show. How about this? You can pay me back if you'll leave me a review on Amazon. So, of course, I did that for him. Obviously, that stuff matters. It's one of the reasons I ask almost every show, if you don't mind, if you enjoyed what I'm doing here, go on Apple, go to iTunes, leave a review for me, It does help get the word out. So what's coming up? Uh, New Alice Cooper music, new Alice Cooper album is incoming, but it won't be out in time for the next show. I do think probably two shows from now, David's going to be back with me and we're going to be talking about the new Alice Cooper record. Crossing my fingers, hoping it's going to be really good. So for our next episode, episode 19, (laughs) well, I guess it's just going to be me talking again. Uh, But that's all right. That's what you're into, right? I mean, that's usually what it is. Uh, I hope so, anyway. Thanks for listening. Hope everybody stays safe. I'll see you soon.